Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Ready for a career in behavioral health? Earn your online degree at Herzing University. Choose from health and human services, psychology, or social work programs. Gain the skills to work, coordinate, and manage nonprofits. Secure a bachelor's in psychology to study mental health or advance your social work career through our online Masters of Social Work. Let us help you become a social change agent. Your future starts now at Herzing University. Text HEALTH to 85109. That's HEALTH to 85109. Or visit herzing.edu. The Peter Schiff Show. Today's podcast is sponsored by Indeed. Indeed partners with you on every step of the hiring process so you can find talent with the skills you need through tools like Indeed Instant Match, assessments, and virtual interviews. Get started right now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com Peter. The podcast is also sponsored by Feels. Shipped to your doorstep in only a few days, Feels CBD is the natural, healthy, better way to feel better. Go to feels.com slash gold and you'll get 40% off your first three months with free shipping. Another early morning gold rally fizzled out today. I think when the U.S. stock market opened for trading, gold was up about $20 an ounce. Silver was even stronger. It was trading up about $90. But then what really let the wind out of the sail of the rally was an increase in oil prices that I think bled over into the bond market, causing treasury yields to really back up on the long end. And the yield curve steepened quite a bit because we didn't see any increases on the short end. We got the yield on the 30-year bond up to 2.088 and on the 10-year at 1.635. These were pretty big moves on the day. And again, that's what spooked the precious metals markets. They didn't close negative. Gold, I think, was up about five bucks by the close. So it lost three quarters of its rally. Silver, about half. I think it finished up about 50 cents. But in reality, nothing that was happening in the bond market should have been a drag on the gold and silver market. But that is how traders have consistently responded to rising bond yields or a steepening yield curve that has caused selling in gold and silver. And again, the narrative is that rising rates are bearish for gold and silver, 
even though the rates are negative, which makes no sense. Just because the rates are less negative doesn't mean that you have a negative environment for gold and silver. I think as long as rates are negative, that is a huge wind in the sales of gold and silver because you want to avoid negative interest rates, no matter how negative they happen to be. The knock on gold and silver has always been when you own gold and silver, you forego interest. Now, obviously, the higher interest rates are, the greater the opportunity cost of owning gold. So if interest rates are 10% and you own gold, well, you give up 10% interest. Well, if interest rates are only 3% and you own gold, well, you're only giving up 3%. So clearly, when rates are 3%, that's a better environment for gold than when they're 10%. But when they're negative, it doesn't matter. If they're negative 2% or negative 10%, nobody wants a negative yield. So as long as yields are negative, you want to get out of bonds. It doesn't matter how negative. I mean, once you're losing, it's a loss. I mean, clearly losing 10 is worse than losing two or three, but nobody even wants to lose two or three. I mean, why lose any money if you don't have to? In fact, the larger the negative yield on bonds, right? Obviously, the less attractive bonds become, and you could argue the more attractive gold is as an alternative. But again, since nobody wants to lose any money at all, I don't think it makes as big a difference how negative yields are to the price of gold as it would in the other direction when you're looking at how high the yields are. So any negative rate environment is extremely bullish for gold. Now, of course, part of the other problem for gold is traders still expect the government to react to the increasing inflation. And again, that was evident this morning from the rise in oil prices. We didn't quite hit a new high for the year in oil. We closed up about 50 cents a barrel, just below 83, about 82, 90 something. But we did trade well north of 83 intraday. I think we got above 83.60. The high, I think, for the year is 83.74. And maybe we set that the other day. I don't think we touched that price today. But oil prices are rising as a result of inflation. Gold should also be rising as a result of inflation. It should not be falling because investors expect the Fed to fight inflation. Again, if the Fed could fight inflation, they'd be fighting it right now. The reason they're not fighting it, the reason they're pretending that it's not a problem and so there's no need to fight it is because they can't. But they're never going to admit that that would be a complete disaster. So they have to pretend that it's transitory, that it's not a real problem, but also pretend that if it ever becomes a real problem, well, they're gonna do something about it. But of course, they can't do anything about it, so they won't. But I think the other issue is that a lot of investors regard both bonds and treasuries as safe havens, and they move into those assets when they're in a risk-off mode. But when they want risk, then they buy risky assets like stocks, which had a strong day today. The Dow was up almost 200 points. The NASDAQ also had a similar gain. It was up about eight-tenths of a percent today. Cryptocurrencies, I'll get to Bitcoin later in the day, but cryptocurrencies up. So all the risk assets being bought today and selling the safe havens. But when inflation 
is your threat. U.S. Treasury bonds lose their safe haven status because bonds are never a safe haven against inflation because inflation erodes away the purchasing power of all bonds. It's got nothing to do with default risk, right? You're not concerned about default when you have inflation. You're concerned about getting paid back in money that doesn't have much value. It doesn't matter about the credit quality. The highest credit quality bonds are no different from junk bonds when it comes to the inflation risk. They may be different when it comes to judging default risk, but this is not about default. This is about the value of the principle of the bond going down. So even if you get repaid, you still are subject to the risks of inflation. So when inflation is the risk, you don't have any safety in U.S. Treasuries. Alternatively, you have complete safety in gold. Gold is a safe haven from inflation and bonds are not. Yet traders still look at both assets as if they have the same characteristic, as if you buy and sell them together when you're looking for a safe haven, you can buy treasures or you can buy gold depending on your preference for your safe haven. But when you are looking for growth and you're looking to assume risk, right? Well, then you buy other assets. Treasuries are a risk asset when it comes to inflation. And so they need to trade the opposite of gold. They're not the same of gold. They're different because gold has a real value. It is not a piece of paper. Gold is a hedge against inflation because gold is an actual commodity whose price rises as a result of inflation alongside of other commodities that also see higher prices in an inflationary environment. So the two assets have to diverge. And at some point, they will. At some point, weakness in the bond market is going to stop translating into weakness in the gold and silver market when people start to realize how these two assets have actually diverged from one another and are serving completely different roles in the environment we have right now. Because again, the risk on asset in an inflationary environment is treasuries. In fact, bonds represent the riskiest asset in an inflationary environment because the risk of default really is minimized where there's a lot of inflation because who would default? Money is so cheap and so plentiful. It's easy for debtors to repay their debts in an inflationary environment. I mean, that's one of the reasons the federal government creates so much inflation because it's the world's biggest debtor and it makes it a lot easier to repay its debts, although actually it's repudiating its debts through inflation. But inflation helps all debtors repay their debt. So the risk is not default. The risk is that you get paid in money that doesn't have much value. And so in an inflationary environment, and we are in the most inflationary environment we've ever been in, the riskiest thing you can own are bonds. And it doesn't matter what bond you have. Treasuries are no safer than the riskiest junk bond when the threat is a loss of purchasing power to inflation. The real safe haven in this environment is gold. And as soon as investors understand the difference between gold and treasuries, they will then start moving into gold as a safe haven. 
and they will not be deterred in their buying of gold when bonds go down because they will expect bonds to go down. When you're looking to remove inflation risk from your portfolio, you sell bonds, including treasuries, and you buy gold and silver. If you're running a small business, you're already putting in a lot of work to better yourself. Why not put the same effort into bettering your hiring process? It doesn't take much. It just takes Indeed. Indeed is a hiring partner that gets you what you want when you want it. A short list of quality candidates as fast as possible because you can't do it all yourself. At Indeed, you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Indeed is an unbelievably powerful hiring partner. Indeed is your go-to for hiring the right candidates right away. So don't struggle on your own to find quality candidates. Indeed can help you hire the right people right now. Indeed partners with you on every step of the hiring journey so you can find the talent with the skills that you need. And they bring you the tools like instant match, assessments, and virtual interviews. With Instant Match, as soon as you sponsor a post, you get a short list of quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed match your job description. And you can even invite them to apply right away. You know, given today's regulatory environment, hiring the right people has never been more important. And hiring the wrong people has never been more risky. That's why it's so important to get it right the first time. And with Indeed Instant Match, Over 90% of employers get quality candidates as soon as they sponsor their job post, according to Indeed data. Candidates you invite to apply through Instant Match are three times more likely to apply to your job than those who only see it in searches, according to Indeed's data. So get started right now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash Peter. Get a $75 credit at Indeed.com slash Peter. Indeed.com slash Peter. This offer is valid through December 31st. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, then you need Indeed. And in fact, more evidence that the stagflationary environment is here continues to mount on a daily basis. First of all, on the inflation front, look at the earnings reported by Procter & Gamble and look at what they're saying. I mean, first of all, Procter & Gamble has already raised prices on a lot of its consumer products, but they're warning the public, they're warning their shareholders that more price increases are coming, that inflation is widespread, it's everywhere, it's across the board, it's getting worse, and price increases are going to continue. So clearly, they didn't get the memo that inflation is transitory. I mean, they're not basing their pricing off of memos, they're basing them off of reality. And they see what's happening. And this is going on across the board when it comes to consumer prices. So we're seeing this evidence. Again, I spoke earlier about oil prices going up. That's just one price that is rising. They are rising across the board. And again, not only are prices rising, but they're in short supply. So in many circumstances, you can't even buy the stuff that you want to buy, even if you're willing to pay a higher price. But on the other side of the stagflation spectrum is the economy because remember stagflation has two components to it you have rising prices and you also have a weak economy or rising unemployment and i think we're going to really see the increases in unemployment 
at a later date, although not that later, although part of the manifestation of this is all of the people that have never even returned to the labor market and the shortage of workers that we already see along with the shortage of goods. But look at the economic data that came out both yesterday and today. Yesterday, we got the industrial production numbers for September. And the market was not expecting any big numbers. We got up 0.4 in August, and the expectation was for a rise of 0.2 in September. Well, they revised the August number down. It went to negative 0.1. And instead of having another positive number, we actually plunged 1.3%. That is a horrible number for industrial production, it was well below even the lowest number from the consensus range. The low end was minus 0.4. The high end was up 0.6. We dropped 1.3. But again, we didn't drop 1.3 from the up 0.4 that we got the prior month. We dropped 1.3 from a downwardly revised minus 0.1. So really, if you factor both those months in, if you take the extra 0.5 negative, we really dropped 1.8 versus an expected rise of 0.2. So not only a horrible number, but way, way below estimates. Even if you just look at manufacturing output, that was revised from up 0.2 in August to down 0.4 in September. And then instead of rising by 0.3 in September, we dropped by 0.7. Another huge decline. The estimate, the range was from minus 0.1 to up 0.3. We got minus 0.7, but again, that's a minus 0.7 from a minus 0.4, not from the plus 0.2 that everybody expected another 0.3% rise. So way, way below estimates. Look at the capacity utilization. That was reported at 76.4% in August. They revised that down to 76.2, it was expected to notch up to 76.5 in September. Instead, it plunged all the way down to 75.2%. So what does this indicate? Less production from American factories. Well, we already have shortages everywhere. You would expect to see increased production to alleviate those shortages. Instead, in the face of shortages, production is even falling, which means the shortages are going to get bigger. Stuff that's in short supply is going to be in even shorter supply. But again, this is a weak economy. That's why we're seeing these weak numbers in industrial production, manufacturing, and capacity utilization. Then look at the housing numbers that came out earlier this morning. Home sales in September were supposed to rise by 1.62 million units annualized. These are all annualized numbers. Even though they report them by the month, you know, they annualize them. So they multiply them by 12. Well, the prior month was initially reported at 1.615 million. That got revised down to 1.58. The September number came in at 1.555 million, substantially below the 1.621 million expected. Same thing on permits. Permits were revised down from the original estimate. The August number was 1.728 million, was revised down to 1.721 million. 
But the August number for permits, which was supposed to be 1.68 million, instead came out at 1.589 million. Again, well below. Why are we seeing a drop in both housing starts and in permits to start more houses? Because demand is starting to wear off because prices are too high. Consumers can't afford to buy the houses based on what it costs the builders to construct them because the builders are looking at higher labor costs and higher material costs. And even though we have record low mortgage rates, the amount of money that has to be borrowed is so high that even at low rates, the absolute value of the payment is beyond what a lot of people can afford. And so the market is slowing. You can probably treat yourself to an ad-free upgrade or at least grab an extra latte after getting a Chime checking account with features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe, no minimum balance requirements, and no monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at Chime.com goals 24. That's Chime.com goals 24. Chime feels like progress. Banking services and debit card provided by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. SpotMe eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Convert your current recessed lighting with energy-saving LED downlights from Fight Electric. They're bright and install easily in just minutes. They also go from regular lighting to nightlight mode with just a simple flip of a switch. Save big on all Fight Lighting products now at Menards. Shop our lighting options today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money at CBD isn't about what you feel. It's about what you don't feel. Stress, anxiety, pain. I was having a hard time sleeping through the night. I'd often wake up two or three times during the same night. But I found when I take CBD, most of the time, I actually sleep all the way through the night. And feels is a better way to feel better. And we've got a great offer. You can go to feels.com gold and you'll get 40% off your first three months and free shipping. Feels is a premium CBD. It'll help you clear your head and feel your best. It's hassle-free, delivered directly to your door. CBD naturally helps reduce stress, anxiety, pain, and sleeplessness. There's no hangover or addiction. Place a few drops of Feels under your tongue or pop a CBD-infused mint into your mouth for a dose of chill on the go. In fact, the mints are new, and personally, I think they're a better way to go, especially if you're on the go. The thing to remember, though, about CBD is that your right dose is important, and everyone's right dose is different. In fact, Feels offers a free CBD hotline to help guide your personal experience so that you find your perfect dose. The Feels customer service team is dedicated to making sure that you get the best use of your CBD. And joining the Feels monthly membership makes your self-care even easier. You'll save money on every order, and you can pause or cancel anytime. 
So start feeling better with Feels. Become a member today by going to feels.com gold and you'll get 40% off your first three months and free shipping. That's feels, F-E-A-L-S dot com slash gold to become a member and get 40% automatically taken off your first three months and free shipping. In fact, more evidence of a slowing housing market. We got the announcement yesterday from Zillow that they were exiting, at least temporarily, so maybe suspending, but maybe it's suspension for good, their home flipping business. And I just happened to talk about the home flipping going on at Zillow a couple of weeks ago on one of my podcasts. And now Zillow comes out and has to warn investors. And the stock dropped about 9.5% yesterday on the news we rebounded about 1% or 2% today with today's market rally. But they warned investors about this problem and they were going to temporarily get out of this home flipping business, which home flipping was accounting for a large portion of their earnings. Of course, now it's going to account for a large portion of their lack of earnings, right? Their losses. But the reason that Zillow said they're going to get out of the home flipping business is because they've got too big an inventory of unsold homes. So they bought a bunch of homes that they thought they could sell at a quick profit and they still have the homes and now they're having to reduce their offer price and now maybe they're selling some of these homes for less than they bought. And of course, I pointed out the absurdity of this business model because they're not buying homes that are in complete disrepair that need a lot of major renovation. They're just trying to buy homes slightly below market value and then maybe just spiff them up a little bit, just shine them up, make a few minor adjustments and then sell them for their fair market value and make a quick buck, which seemed like a very risky way You know, talk about picking up pennies uh, in front of steamrollers. And of course, I think I mentioned on the podcast that I'm sure that the homeowners know a lot more about these properties than Zillow. I mean, Zillow barely knows anything about them. And in the hot housing market that we had, to the extent that a owner of a home is not going to take advantage of the market, but is instead going to hit a low ball Zillow bid, it's probably because there's something wrong with that house that Zillow can't pick up in its algorithms, right? Because all they know is, all right, here's the zip code. How many square foot does it have? How many bedrooms? How many bathrooms? What are the houses selling for that have that criteria? But at the end of the day, each house is unique. And there could be a problem with one of these houses that Zillow's algorithms don't know about. But the owner of the house, he knows about it. That's why he's selling to Zillow. So Zillow probably gets stuck with a bunch of lemons. But one of the factors or two of the factors that Zillow specifically mentioned as being problematic for its home flipping business was that the homes that did need some minor touch-ups, they weren't able to make them because they can't get the labor, right? The workers aren't there and the materials are more expensive or are in short supply. So they can't hire workers. They can't source the materials. So they can't fix up the houses in order to resell them. So they're having to pause the business as a result of these shortages in addition to the buildup in inventory. So again, more signs that the economy is slowing, but also more signs that inflationary pressures are building throughout the economy. So more inflation, a weaker economy, stagflation. Of course, the government continues to pretend 
that there aren't any problems. In fact, inflation is now being described by the Biden administration as a high class problem, meaning, you know, it's a problem, but it's a good problem, right? Because that's kind of a high class problem, meaning like, hey, it's a problem, but you only have that problem because you're doing so well. And so, hey, high class problems aren't really that bad when you consider them in the grand scheme of things. But what do they mean by a high class problem? Well, what the Biden administration is saying is that we only have this inflation because we have a really strong economy, right? Because we have a low rate of unemployment. So because we have this great Biden economy, because we're recovering and so many people now have jobs, we're buying a bunch of stuff. We have all this demand because all these people who now have jobs want to buy stuff. And so we have all this demand. And so that's why prices are going up. And so we should, you know, be glad. I mean, sure, we would feel better if the prices weren't going up. But do we really want to trade lower prices for jobs in a weaker economy? So if paying a little bit more, right? If that's the price we pay for prosperity, well, then it's worth paying, right? This is classic government propaganda. They always want to blame inflation on prosperity, right? Blame it on the public. You're making too much money. You're spending too much money. You have too much prosperity. There's so much growth. This is just a trade-off. And so we really don't want to destroy your job and create a recession in order to bring down the inflation rate. So we're just going to have to grin and bear it. This is the price we pay for this prosperity, this booming economy. And a lot of people just accept that, you know, on face value. Oh, yeah, you know, a lot of people are buying stuff. And so it makes sense, right? There's more demand and prices are going up and there's more demand because we have a strong economy. No, there's more demand because we have an inflationary economy. It's the inflation that's stoking the demand. People are spending money because the Fed printed it and gave it to them and now they have it to spend. The problem is they didn't produce anything. They just spent money that the Fed printed. You see, a real strong economy creates abundance. It doesn't create scarcity. To say the economy is so strong and that's why we have scarcity. I mean, that's what the Soviet Union used to tell its people. It's the Soviet Union back in the 1970s. They had empty shelves. And it's interesting, the way the Russian government or Soviet government, the Politburo, the way they used to explain this to their own citizens, because they would see pictures of America, maybe in magazines or somewhere. They saw pictures of markets with all these products on the shelves. And they had been in their own markets where there's nothing on the shelves. You know, I remember my dad used to tell me this story about somebody he talked to that used to live in the Soviet Union. And the guy told my dad, you know, when he lived in the Soviet Union, whenever he saw a line, he would just automatically stand in it without even knowing what he was lining up for. And what he told my father is, look, whenever there was a line, you knew there was something at the end of the line that you needed, whatever it was. So you would just get in this line and wait for hours to get whatever people were waiting for because you assumed that you needed it. Well, we didn't have that in America. We didn't have shortages. No one had to wait in lines. I mean, yeah, maybe you had a checkout line at a market. You waited there for a few minutes as you were buying all the stuff that you took off the shelves. But the way the Soviet government explained this disparity, right? Because the Soviets were telling their citizens that they have it great, right? It's a people's paradise, a worker's paradise. 
in the Soviet Union and Americans are suffering. You know, the capitalist pigs are exploiting the workers. And so everybody is poor and suffering in America, yet everybody is prospering in the Soviet Union. So they would see these pictures with these stores with all these products on the shelves. And it didn't make any sense to the Russians, given what they were being told. So what the Russian government told the citizens was that, well, you see, in America, everybody is poor. Nobody has any money, so nobody can afford to buy anything. And that's why the shelves are full of products, because nobody can afford them. So the products just sit on the shelves indefinitely because the poor Americans have no money to buy them. In contrast, in Russia, see, everybody is rich. Everybody has lots of money. And so the minute there's a product on the shelf, it gets sold immediately because the Russians are so rich. We all have so much money. We Everybody has rubles that the minute there's a product there, you know, it's sold in an instant. And maybe superficially, that kind of propaganda makes sense. But then again, anybody can have rubles. I mean, the government prints all the rubles they want. The key is producing products. That's what the government didn't do. That's what the U.S. economy did. We produced products. It was because we were so rich and so productive that we had all this abundance of products. It was because the Soviet Union produced nothing but money. That's why everything was in short supply. I mean, the Soviet Union was a real communist country, not like China is today. I mean, back in the 70s during the Cold War, Americans didn't go to stores and see a bunch of Soviet-made products on the shelves. I mean, the Soviets didn't make anything. They exported nothing. I mean, yeah, I mean, I guess they made caviar or grew caviar, also vodka, right? They made vodka, Russian vodka sold, maybe some furs because they trapped animals and and they skinned them. But that was it. I mean, they didn't manufacture anything. I mean, not like China, not like you go into Walmart and everything is made in China, right? Nothing was made in the Soviet Union. They were broke because they were really a communist country, yet they were able to give out this propaganda to the people to try to explain all these shortages as a byproduct of their own prosperity. And again, that's what the U.S. government is doing with inflation, trying to blame the public. We're too rich. We're too prosperous. The economy is too strong. And therefore, we have to deal with the unintended trade-off of higher prices. But a real economy produces abundance. If you have real economic growth, you are investing more in plant and equipment. So you're producing more entrepreneurs are finding ways to be more productive and to produce more stuff with fewer resources. And so you get all this abundance, you get increasing supply in a booming economy and the increasing supply results in lower prices. And that really is the most important part of the booming economy. It's the lowering of prices because when prices go down for goods and services, that means Americans can enjoy more goods and services. That is what makes a higher standard of living, the ability to afford more things. So if goods that were unaffordable now become affordable, or if certain goods that you were buying become less expensive, and that frees up money to buy other goods that you previously couldn't afford because other goods that were more important were more expensive, that is how you have a rising standard of living. So it is nonsense for the government to claim that higher prices are a trade-off from economic growth. No, economic growth in and of itself brings about lower prices, and that is the benefit of economic growth. It lowers the cost of living. 
So when the politicians are trying to say, hey, it's a high class problem. No, it's not. It's just a problem. And the problem is not being created by people who buy things. It's created by the Federal Reserve who's printing the money that people who get the money are trying to spend because people are overlooking the connection between money and work. You're supposed to get paid for the work that you do. And the work that you do is supposed to produce goods and services. If you're just getting paid and you're not producing, then it's just going to mean higher prices. And this is particularly true for goods. I mean, Americans still provide a lot of services, but one of the things we're not supplying is a lot of goods. And I went over to on my last podcast why the Federal Reserve is in many ways responsible because it's artificially low interest rates are diverting resources away from goods production towards the production of all kinds of things we don't actually need, all kinds of pie-in-the-sky, long-term type of projects that we really can't support with our savings base. It's the artificially low interest rates are sending false economic signals. We're not creating what we actually need because we don't have a high savings rate. We have a lot of Americans who actually want to spend money right now. And so our resources should be devoted to producing the stuff that Americans actually want to buy. But that's not happening. And we're becoming more and more reliant on foreign economies to produce the stuff that Americans want to buy. And that's becoming harder and harder, especially in the COVID environment. And so the price increases that are resulting from the inflation that the Fed is creating are becoming more and more pronounced. Meanwhile, if you look at some of the data that came out yesterday on foreign buyers of U.S. Treasuries, look at the Chinese portfolio. In the most recent month, I think in August, they dumped another $21 billion of U.S. Treasuries. Their holdings of U.S. Treasuries are now at the lowest since August of 2010. You're talking about over 11 years ago. Think about how much more debt the U.S. government has than we had 11 years ago. And our largest creditor, although now it's number two because Japan is still buying. In fact, the Japanese holdings of U.S. treasuries are at a new record high. I don't know what the Japanese are thinking, but the Chinese are thinking a lot clearer. They are divesting of U.S. treasuries. And I don't think it's an accident that their treasury holdings are going down. I think it's by design. I think that trend is going to accelerate. And with the Chinese basically net sellers of U.S. treasuries instead of buyers, we are basically competing with China in the sale of U.S. treasuries because we're selling treasuries and so are the Chinese. And I think the number of nations willing to buy those treasuries is going to continue to diminish. And I think more and more nations, as they are divesting themselves of U.S. treasuries, and by extension, U.S. dollars, because that's really what you're selling. When you're selling treasuries, you're selling dollars because the yield on treasuries is practically nothing. So in order to buy treasuries, you just got to love U.S. dollars. And if you're selling U.S. treasuries, well, that indicates that you don't love U.S. dollars. Well, as people show less love for the dollar, they're going to show more love for gold, right? Gold being the real opposite of the dollar, the challenger to the dollar's 
reign as the principal reserve asset for central banks because it's not really other currencies. I don't think the dollar's main rival is the euro or the yen or the Chinese RMB. I think the principal rival for the U.S. dollar is gold. And I think when central banks really start to worry about the future value of the dollar, that's where they're going to turn. I mean, they're not necessarily going to say, oh, the dollar looks like it could be in trouble, so let me buy a bunch of euros. There are a lot of problems in Europe. Now, you could say, well, maybe the Swiss franc or maybe the Norwegian kroner, those currencies could potentially serve as a safer haven. But the gold market, I think, makes a lot more sense from a central bank's perspective. Hey, why just own the liabilities of another central bank? Why just own an asset that isn't anybody's liability, a real monetary asset that is a real store of value and a real safe haven? And I think that's where the world is ultimately going to turn. Now, I know a lot of you who are listening to this podcast who are the Bitcoin uh, aficionados, you're thinking, wait a minute, Peter. No, 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 no. They're going to buy Bitcoin. See, Bitcoin is the preferred alternative to the dollar. Bitcoin is better at being gold than gold. And so the central banks are going to turn to Bitcoin. They're not going to do that. I mean, there may be millennials who are dumb enough to do that. But the central bankers are a little more seasoned. They've been around the block a few times and they're not going to bite on that apple, right? They are going to go to something of real value, something that has a proven long-term track record. They're not going to jump on this Bitcoin bandwagon, despite the fact that Bitcoin is nearing all-time record highs. In fact, maybe it'll hit a record high by the time you guys listen to this podcast. It's trading just above 64000 per Bitcoin not quite a record. I think the record high about six months ago was just around 64900 What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And I think the high price that I saw earlier today was around maybe 64, 300 or 400-ish. So not quite a new record high, but obviously we're within spitting distance of a record. And the catalyst for this move up, I mentioned that on my last podcast, was the launch of the Bitcoin futures ETF began trading today 
The symbol for that ETF is BITO, BITO, and it closed up a dollar six. I guess that's a dollar six from its opening trade. So it closed at 41.94. It did have a bit of a volatile day. It opened at 40.88, and then it actually got down to 40.07. So it was negative for a while before the big rebound. Now, remember, I talked about the fact that we could have had a pump and dump, a buy the rumors, sell the fact on the ETF. So I think that early sell-off was an indication that people maybe were aware of that and were preparing for a dump. But when the dump didn't come, I guess we got a renewed pump. And so we ended up near the highs. Now, I still think a dump is coming. I think a lot of people got into Bitcoin recently with the hype of this Bitcoin uh, futures ETF. And I'm sure they're not going to be able to resist the opportunity to ring the cash register and sell into these higher prices. It's just maybe they're trying to get the pump to go a little longer and get a bit of a bigger gain before they sell into it. But I'm confident that we're going to get a sell-off from these levels. And again, this is not a Bitcoin ETF, so I guess they still have that carrot to dangle at people. This is a Bitcoin futures ETF. And the difference is that there's no actual Bitcoin in the ETF. There are just derivatives where there's futures contracts and the futures contracts themselves they don't settle into bitcoin it's not like a corn future or even like a gold future right when you buy a gold futures contract you actually can take delivery of your gold and you can obligate the other side of that contract whoever sold the contract to deliver a hundred ounce bar of gold The Bitcoin futures are more like a financial future than a commodity future in that they settle up in cash when the contracts mature. So if you own a Bitcoin futures contract, you have no ability to ever demand that the other side of the contract deliver you a Bitcoin. You're just going to get the cash equivalent of the value of that Bitcoin in the market on the expiration of the contract. So it's just a derivative. There's no real Bitcoin. You're just gambling on what you think Bitcoin is going to do. And unlike the real world, like let's say for gold, you have legitimate hedgers in the market. Not everybody that's buying and selling gold futures is a speculator. You can have a gold mine that is producing gold and wants to sell the gold, but wants to know in advance what it's going to get for its gold so it can budget its costs and things like that. And so it may hedge its production and its intention is to deliver the actual gold into the forward contract that it sold. But there are no real users of Bitcoin for anything. There are no farmers that need to hedge their crops. Everybody is at all times speculating. Even in financial futures, people could be hedging. They're hedging a portfolio. I mean, I guess in theory, somebody could have Bitcoin and want to hedge their Bitcoin portfolio with Bitcoin futures. But to me, that would make no sense. I mean, just, I don't know, just sell some of your Bitcoin if that's the case. But I don't know, maybe for tax reasons, they want to take something off the table and they're long Bitcoin and they're going to short a Bitcoin future. So I guess that is possible that there could be some portfolio hedging, but I think it would be minimal because I think the vast majority of people who own Bitcoin are not hedging. They're just all in and they're long and they would never want to hedge because they're holding to the moon. So I think it's predominantly a market that is completely dominated by speculators. But again, this ETF 
is all a derivative on a derivative. I mean, it's the antithesis of what Bitcoin is supposed to be, right? Not your keys, not your Bitcoin, right? You don't have your own private key. You don't have your own seed phrase, right? You own a derivative. You don't really own Bitcoin. I mean, the idea behind Bitcoin is you disintermediate. You don't have third parties. You take custody of your own Bitcoin. The fact that all these Bitcoiners get so excited about new ways to gamble on Bitcoin is all just part of the hype. And if anything, it serves to invalidate Bitcoin. The fact that so many people think it's so complicated and so risky to own Bitcoin that they would rather gamble on it through these other vehicles. But of course, anybody who's buying Bitcoin, you're gambling just on Bitcoin. But some people think it's too risky to gamble on Bitcoin, so they want to own futures. And now you got people that think futures contracts are too risky, so they want to gamble on futures contracts by owning an ETF, right? But it's all gambling. And the thing that all of these vehicles have in common is that they're for people who don't want to own the actual Bitcoin, which would lead a normal person to question the value of the asset that people don't want to own. Now, you can say, well, there are a lot of people that don't want to store their gold, so they own a gold ETF. Yeah, because gold is an actual physical thing that costs money to store. It doesn't cost you any money to store your own Bitcoin. So why not? I mean, yeah, if you own a lot of gold or a lot of silver, you may prefer to own it within a ETF. And by the way, the ETF fees are very low on gold and silver compared to what they are in the crypto world. But there's no value add because you can easily store the Bitcoin yourself. The fact that so many people don't want to risk self-storage in and of itself shows you that there is a problem. But, you know, one of the big problems I have with this ETF is the fact that it is being touted by the Bitcoin community as like an official endorsement of Bitcoin. Like this is helping to legitimize Bitcoin, make it more mainstream. And after all, you know, the SEC wouldn't approve it if it didn't think it was a suitable investment. And so it's some kind of a tacit endorsement, even though the SEC is in no way endorsing Bitcoin by approving this ETF. But I think that impression is out there. And I think the Bitcoin community is going out of its way to falsely create that impression that because it was improved, that it represents some type of endorsement by the government. The government is validating it as a legitimate investment, and they're using that validation as a way to con more people into buying Bitcoin, which this is another reason, I think, that we don't even need the SEC. The SEC should be abolished. Not that I think that we shouldn't have this ETF. In fact, as far as I'm concerned, if they want to have a Bitcoin ETF, have at it. I don't think it should be up to the government to approve ETFs or any securities. I think the exchange should be private. And if the exchange wants to approve it, then, you know, the government should have no role. I mean, the people should be able to decide what ETFs they want to create. And investors should be able to decide what they want to buy and what they don't want to buy. And it's none of the government's business. But the minute the government sticks their nose in the business and says, no, 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 we want to vet everything. We want to approve everything. Then I think the public kind of lets its guard down. And it kind of assumes that if something gets approved, that somehow it's been endorsed or it's already been vetted. I mean, I think Bernie Madoff never would have been able to get away with running that big Ponzi scheme for as many years as he did without the cover of both the SEC and FINRA because he was regularly audited by the U.S. government. 
despite the fact that he was running a Ponzi scheme, the auditors didn't pick it up. Well, the public just assumed that the government was doing its job. In fact, other sophisticated investors, other institutions that dealt with Madoff assumed that the government was doing its job. After all, every government audit, you know, he got an A, right? He got a good report card from the government. He wasn't getting fined or there was no problem. So people just assumed that everything was okay because the government didn't do nearly as good a job as the free market would have done absent the government. I'm sure if there was no SEC and no FINRA regularly basically giving Madoff their blue seal of approval, right? Had those entities not been there, then people would have done their own due diligence or there would have been private companies that would have been created that would have looked into this or raided the broker dealers. I mean, people think that the only way to get quality products is for the government to regulate and bless them. No, I mean, the free market does a much better job. I mean, look at magazines like Consumer Reports, right? Consumer Reports reviews products and then writes up reviews and people can look at those reviews before they decide on what to buy. And in fact, now you not only have those type of reviewing services, but you have all kinds of reviews that are being posted on all kinds of websites. It's very easy for people to do research and get feedback before they make a purchase. You don't need the government to bless the transaction. The government to go in and say, yes, we looked into this and they're doing a good job. And so you can buy their products or you can use their services. You don't need the government for that. The free market is perfectly capable of doing the job. And again, look at banking. I talk about this all the time with the moral hazard of the FDIC. Nobody bothers to do any research on the quality of their banks, right? People will just put their money in the closest bank to their house. Doesn't matter. You're just going to go in. You're going to open up a bank account. You couldn't care less what the bank does with your money once you deposit. I mean, even if you're putting in your entire life savings, I mean, people do more research to buy a $500 TV set right, than they do to put $500,000 in a bank, right? You'll just put it in uh, the closest bank, but people might spend an entire week trying to figure out which TV to buy, all kinds of consumer research, quality, price, and finally settling on a TV, but nothing for something as important as a bank. Now, this wasn't always the case. You know, before Roosevelt came in during the 30s with FDIC, people cared, about banks. And of course, there were companies, in case you weren't necessarily that smart and you couldn't read a balance sheet and take a look at the liabilities that the bank had, you could turn to third parties that rated banks and could say, hey, this bank, we've looked them over and they're good and they have a good portfolio. In fact, all sorts of businesses would form guilds, societies that would get together. And if you were a member of this society or this guild, you knew that the business was of a certain standard or a certain quality. Otherwise, it couldn't be a member of that society, of that guild. Now, of course, the problem was when some of those associations, let's say like lawyers, the bar, right? When 
the bar was a voluntary society where lawyers could just join a bar, right? Then you would know, oh, okay, I'm going to hire a member of the bar. I know that the bar requires certain standards, certain competency, certain ongoing education. So if I hire a lawyer that's a member of this bar, I know I'm going to get a, a competent attorney. The problem is when those organizations get friendly with the government, and then the government passes a law that says you can't be a lawyer unless you join the bar, then you have a huge problem because now what they do is they cartelize the legal profession and now everybody has to be a member of the bar and you can't work unless you're a member of the bar. And so now quality goes down and price goes up. The same thing happens in the brokerage industry. You can't be a broker unless you're a member of FINRA. You have to be licensed member of FINRA. I have my licenses at FINRA, but it's not optional. I am required in order to work as a stockbroker, you must be a member of this organization. Now, it shouldn't be that way. It should all be voluntary. And I can voluntarily associate with FINRA. And then if people are looking for a broker and if they respect FINRA, then they'll say, oh, well, I want to work with a broker that's been FINRA vetted that does all the continuous education from FINRA. And you know, by the way, all of the education that I have to do to maintain my license, none of it has to do with the quality of investment recommendations. It's all about compliance with government rules and regulations. A lot of it is just anti-money laundering and that kind of stuff. I mean, there's nothing basically that has to do with your knowledge of investment products. They couldn't care less if we know anything about investment products or about the markets or about economics or accounting. They just want to make sure that we comply with all the government rules and all the FINRA rules and and regulations. But maybe the investing public assumes that there's some kind of competency requirement, some kind of knowledge of finance or accounting. Absolutely none is required at all in the continuing education. But the bottom line is it should be up to the public. So if you're shopping around for a broker, and you want one that's a member of FINRA, then choose one. But you know, if a broker doesn't want to join FINRA, if he can still find customers who don't care that he's not a member of FINRA, that should be his right. And as a brokerage customer, I should have a right to do business with anyone I want. It doesn't have to be somebody who has joined a club that the government requires membership in. I mean, that's a violation of individual liberty and freedom. If two consenting adults want to enter into a relationship, what difference does it make to the government? So I should be able to compete uh, with FINRA licensed brokers if I want and offer my services to people who couldn't care less whether or not I'm a member of FINRA. But we don't live in a free society, unfortunately. And the U.S. government unconstitutionally requires anyone who wants to be a broker in the United States must be a member of FINRA. And so the result of that, I think, is that the quality of investment advice suffers and the cost is higher. I think the public would be far better served uh, by a free market in brokerage services as well as other services, which again brings me back to the point of why I don't think we should even have an SEC because the SEC approving this Bitcoin ETF will create the false impression that it must be good because the government approved it. I don't want the government having any such influence on the market. I don't want the government stamp of approval to create the false impression that something that's bad is actually good. And I don't want the government to be able to prevent something that's actually good 
from being offered on the market. Again, that's what happens with the FDA. When the FDA says certain products are illegal, you can't sell certain drugs, even if doctors want to prescribe them because they think they work, even if patients want to use them because they think they work, the government can say, no, you have no right to use this product. Even if you're a medical doctor, you have no right to prescribe that product because we, the government, think we know better than you. The more decisions that we allow the government to make on our behalf, the less free we become. And the more decisions that are left to us, not only are we more free, but we have better decisions because we have more options. We have more competition. We have more choice. Government limits choice, limits competition. As a result, it maximizes price while reducing quality. (music) 